0: you do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, a surprisingly weak jobs report makes it clear we're still digging our economy out of the deep hole created by COVID-19. Experts were predicting a flood of new jobs in April, 1 million or more. When the numbers came in, they were a dismal quarter of that, just 266,000.
2: We knew this wouldn't be a sprint, it'd be a marathon. We're still
1: digging out of an economic collapse that cost us 22 million jobs but with some sectors of the economy desperate for new hires our restaurants are getting busier and we're finding it really harder to find staff there is definitely a glut of jobs and a lack of hands to fill positions why are Americans still struggling to get back into the workplace and can the government speed things up we'll talk with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and Neil Kashkari the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis And as we slowly turn the corner in the coronavirus pandemic, should public health policy be moving the country to return to normal more quickly? We'll talk with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus, with the Republican Party in fresh turmoil over former President Trump and the big lie about the 2020 election, will believers be able to roll over the non-believers? We'll talk with Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kingsinger. We'll also hear from author Michael Lewis. His new book is The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. And finally, our tribute to a very special group of moms. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is on maternity leave. The country appears to finally be turning the corner on the pandemic, and there is good news to report. One third of American adults have been fully vaccinated. Children between 12 and 16 will likely be able to receive the Pfizer vaccine soon. And there are drops in every way we measure the virus. New cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. But we're still having trouble rounding the bend with the economy as that disappointing jobs report made for sobering headlines Saturday and reminded us that the road to recovery is going to be a long and winding one. And we've got a lot to get to today, and we're going to begin with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer, and he joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. Good morning. So I every time we talk, we talk about where things are. And then you kind of tell us where we're going to be. A few weeks ago, you were saying, you know, they should change the mask restrictions for outdoors if you're vaccinated. You're feeling now about maybe changing those mandates for uh, indoor masks. You, you think they should be lifted, do you?
3: Well, look, COVID won't disappear. We're going to have to learn to live with it. But the risk is substantially reduced as a result of vaccination, as a result of immunity that people have acquired through prior infection. And so I think we're at the point in time when we can start lifting these ordinances in a wholesale fashion. And people have to take precautions based on their individual risk. They have to judge their own individual risk and decide whether or not they're going to avoid crowds or wear masks based on their circumstances. But we've always said from a public health standpoint that we would set as a metric maybe when we get down to 10 cases per 100,000 people on a daily basis. Well, half the country's there right now. If you want to be more conservative and say five cases per 100,000 people, well, this week, by this week, probably about a quarter of states will be there. So we're at the point right now we could start lifting these ordinances and allowing people to resume normal activity. Certainly outdoors, we shouldn't be putting limits on gatherings anymore. We should be encouraging people to go outside. And in the states where prevalence is low, vaccination rates are high, and we have good testing in place, so we're identifying infections. I think we could start lifting these restrictions indoors as well on a broad basis.
1: When you talk about people's individual risk calculations, those have been all over the place. One of the things we've seen in these economic numbers on Friday was that people are still scared. Um, help people understand how they should think through making their own risk calculations after more than a year of kind of stabbing it, trying to get some clarity to decide how to keep themselves safe.
3: Well, look, I think part of the hesitation right now is cultural. We have spent a year apart. We've spent a year being told to stay away from people and wear masks. I think it's going to take some time to get back in the, in the normal swing of things and, and get that socialization back. But if you've been vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines or the J&J vaccine, your risk is very low from having a bad COVID outcome. And your risk of getting an asymptomatic infection that you could spread to others is also substantially reduced. The data now does support that. So we could start drawing some firm conclusions and basing our public health advice on that. You know, there's one model that's out that says that if you were 65 and above, your risk of succumbing to COVID if you were infected with it was around one in 100 during the peak of the infection and probably a little worse than that at the outset. That same model now predicts it's about 1 in 20,000 if you've been fully vaccinated and you're an immunocompetent person. So the risk is substantially reduced from vaccination. And I think you can sort of conclude that probably your risk from COVID if you're fully vaccinated is comparable maybe even less than your risk from flu if you're fully vaccinated and older individuals. So, you know, you can start resuming normal activity. I think the only residual risk for someone who's fully vaccinated is could you have asymptomatic infection that you don't know about? And if you're around someone who's immunocompromised, um, is vulnerable to COVID, you still want to be careful in those circumstances. But you know when you're in those circumstances and you always want to be careful in those circumstances because you don't want to pass an infection to someone who can't defend against it. So is it fair to interpret
1: what you're saying is that if I've been vaccinated twice, even if I'm in an elderly population, that essentially the risk for me, I shouldn't think about it as a new thing, but I should think about it basically the way it would be with with the regular old flu. That where we are now... Is comparable to something we know before in terms of the kinds of risks we would take when we operated in regular life.
3: Look, I think that that's right. People get uncomfortable when you start comparing the uh, the rate of you know death and the risk of COVID to flu. Uh, because of some of the comparisons that have been made in the past. But I think for you know most consumers who need something to anchor against, I think that that's a fair assessment, that if you're fully vaccinated against COVID with one of the Western vaccines, your risk of having a bad outcome from COVID is about comparable to flu and maybe less, because the vaccines for COVID are more effective than the vaccines for flu. So I think that that's a reasonable way for the average consumer to anchor their thinking about COVID right now. Again, the only residual concern I think a fully vaccinated person should have is are they, are they themselves um, immunocompromised? I mean, if, and you know if you are. If you have a chronic disease that makes you more vulnerable, you'll know that. And the vaccines won't be as effective for you. And are you going to be around people who are immunocompromised? And there you want to be more careful. That's where I would still exercise some caution. But outside of those circumstances, I think we can get back to doing normal things right now against the backdrop of a summer when prevalence is going to decline very quickly. I talked in the outset about 10 cases per 100,000 or 5 cases per count thousand we're dropping about one point every two or three days so by the end of the next two weeks most of the country is going to be around five or maybe a little bit more it's going to be quite low the prevalence
1: when you look at the map of places that have not had a lot of people getting vaccinated do you expect that those will be in the future the places where we might see some occasional flare-ups between now and and the next big stage of this
3: I think that's probably right. And as vaccine effectiveness perhaps declines as we head into the fall and the winter for people who were vaccinated a full year ago, I think we're going to have to look at the data closely on that, how much of a decline you get in protection. But that's a long ways off. We'll worry about that in the fall and the winter. I do think we're going to have to contend with COVID again this winter. I and mean, we may have to re-implement mask ordinances in certain settings where we have outbreaks or even close schools in certain settings. But I think it's going to be much more reactive. We're going to be reacting and putting public health measures in place based on measures of spread and not these sort of wide spread ordinances that we have right now. I think we need to start lifting these things as the situation improves also to demonstrate that we can do that and that we maintain our integrity and our ability to re-implement these things when we have to. The public has to trust that public health officials are going to lift these restrictions as quickly as they put them in place as the conditions improve. And that's probably partly what's holding back the economy right now. People are not going back to work, not just because of the benefits. I know there's been a lot of talk about that, but also because they're being told they have to wear masks and still have to exercise cautions that probably in many, parts of this country you don't have to do. You look at San Francisco, 20 cases a day, more than 70% of the population vaccinated, very good testing in place. They don't need uh, mask ordinances indoors anymore and certainly not outside.
1: All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, we really appreciate you every week. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. We turn now to jobs and the economy and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. She joins us from Providence, Rhode Island. Good morning and happy Mother's Day.
4: Good morning, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and grandmothers out there.
1: I want to start with the jobs report. There were all kinds of expectations that there would be a million jobs in April. The number came in at two hundred sixty-six thousand. What do you think happened?
4: I think we have a long way to go to recover from the pandemic. Uh, it's there are so many Americans still struggling. Eight million fewer jobs than there were pre-pandemic. So. YOU KNOW, WE ARE WORKING VERY HARD. IN FACT, WE HAD A MEETING WITH THE PRESIDENT ON FRIDAY AND THAT WAS HIS DIRECTION TO US WHICH IS WE ARE MAKING BOLD MOVES BUT THERE'S A LONG WAY TO GO AND WE HAVE TO BE THERE TO HELP AMERICANS FIND JOBS.
1: DID HE SAY DO X, Y, OR Z TO SPEED THIS RECOVERY UP?
4: RIGHT NOW WE'RE OBVIOUSLY VERY FOCUSED ON WORKING WITH CONGRESS TO GET THE PRESIDENT'S JOBS PACKAGE PASSED AND HIS FAMILY'S PACKAGE. Uh, the reality is, we, ha- we have fallen behind with our investments in the economy, and people are still struggling, women in particular, still struggling to find affordable child care. TO BREAK DOWN SOME OF THE BARRIERS NECESSARY TO FIND A JOB, TO HAVE ACCESS TO THE SKILLS THEY NEED TO GET A GOOD JOB.
1: WOMEN IN PARTICULAR BETWEEN THREE AND FOUR MILLION LOST JOBS IN THIS PANDEMIC. IT FELL ON THEIR SHOULDERS BECAUSE IN MOST uh, FAMILIES WOMEN BEAR THE BURDEN OF THE PANDEMIC MORE THAN ANY OTHERS. IS THERE A PARTICULAR uh, FRICTION TO WOMEN GETTING BACK INTO THE WORKFORCE THAT YOU'VE SEEN uh, THAT MAKES THIS RECOVERY PARTICULARLY DIFFICULT FOR WOMEN?
4: Yes, absolutely. So, so first of all, women are clustered in the industries that were hit the most, you know, the lower skill service jobs, waitresses, working in hotels. And we all know that those industries were hit the hardest. So women were put out of work uh, in greater numbers. But the reality is, um, as you say, you know, women are more likely to be the caretakers. So lack of affordable child care hits women the hardest. The fact that schools were closed and many still remain closed hits women harder. On unemployment,
1: there are a lot of people who believe that the unemployment relief that people are getting is hurting in the job market. Essentially, people are keeping unemployment instead of going to look for work. Is there any discussion within the administration about t- tweaking that or doing anything to remove that as a, as a barrier to, to jobs?
4: Obviously, we are monitoring that, but at this point, there's nothing in the data which would suggest that that's the reason people are out of work. Uh, by the way, we have to remember that when the president moved to make this happen, this unemployment insurance has been a lifeline, a survival you know, lifeline for so many Americans. The number one reason now that people aren't going back to work is what you said, fear. OR THEY CAN'T FIND childcare, OR SCHOOLS ARE STILL CLOSED. SO WE'LL MONITOR IT AS NECESSARY. BUT RIGHT NOW, WE DON'T THINK THAT'S THE REASON PEOPLE AREN'T ABLE TO GO BACK TO WORK. IN
1: line IN MONTANA, THEY'RE GETTING RID OF uh, UNEMPLOYMENT BECAUSE THEY THINK IT HAS THIS EFFECT ON WORK. AND EVEN IN RHODE ISLAND, YOUR SUCCESSOR HAS PUSHED FOR LEGISLATION THAT ALLOWS PEOPLE TO KEEP SOME OF THEIR UNEMPLOYMENT BENEFITS IF THEY GO BACK TO WORK. SO IT DOES SEEM THAT A LOT OF PEOPLE OUT THERE THINK THIS REALLY IS AN IMPEDIMENT to getting people that unemployment benefits are an impediment to getting people to go look for work. So it does seem there is some evidence out there.
4: So there's certainly anecdotal evidence. By the way, this is regional and it's appropriate that governors in different regions would respond to what's going on in their regional labor market. But if you look nationally, wages aren't going up. People are still telling us the number one reason they're not going back to work is is fear due to the virus and more people were looking for work last month than the month before so we are i am engaged with businesses constantly listening monitoring but at the moment it doesn't seem to be that that's the major impediment
1: in conversations with business one of the reasons the numbers were down this last month is that uh, so-called supply chain manufacturers couldn't get the materials they needed to make what they need How much of a worry is that to you, and how long might that delay a robust economic recovery?
4: It's a significant factor. It's a significant worry. You see supply chains having been disrupted across the board. Uh, An area that I am particularly focused on as Commerce Secretary is the semiconductor industry. FOR for DECADES WE'VE ALLOWED AMERICA TO FALL BEHIND AND WE DON'T PRODUCE ENOUGH SEMICONDUCTORS IN AMERICA AND THE PRESIDENT'S JOBS PACKAGE CALLS FOR $50 BILLION INVESTMENT SO WE CAN RESHORE THAT SUPPLY CHAIN, MAKE SEMICONDUCTORS IN AMERICA SO WE'RE LESS VULNERABLE uh, and of course, semiconductors are they 're the building blocks of a future economy, so it 's a top priority and something we 're working aggressively to address
1: but the timeline on that is very long. I mean the Intel CEO said that he expects the supply chain to affect. Uh, TO BE THE SHORTAGE TO LAST FOR A COUPLE OF YEARS. SO THIS IS uh, SOMETHING THAT LOOKS LIKE IT'S GOING TO BE WITH US FOR A WHILE. AND ALSO IT SEEMS TO ME THAT the, THE PRESIDENT HAS OFFERED A $50 BILLION PLAN ON SEMICONDUCTORS OVER FIVE YEARS. BUT TSMC, THE TAIWANESE manufacturer OF CHIPS, IS SPENDING $28 billion A YEAR. SO THIS BOTH SEEMS LIKE A VERY LONG-TERM SOLUTION AND ALSO MAYBE NOT ENOUGH.
4: Well, our, the fifty billion the president's calling for has to be matched by the private sector. You know, it is um, my hope that, that the fifty billion would would be matched by another fifty or hundred billion from the private sector. But the point is, we're finally taking action. You know, President Biden's plan, which, which, by the way, we see a lot of bipartisan support for in Congress. I've had many, many discussions with senators. We have to get going. As you say, this will take years. We're behind, and it's time to take action and get going on the plan now.
1: AS THE ADMINISTRATION'S LIAISON TO BUSINESS, I WONDER WHAT YOU'RE HEARING ABOUT THE PRESIDENT'S PROPOSED TAX uh, INCREASES ON CORPORATIONS. Uh, JAMIE DIMON, THE uh, CEO OF JPMORGAN CHASE, SAID THOSE taxes were, TAX INCREASES WERE A LITTLE CRAZY. Uh, WHAT HAVE YOU HEARD FROM BUSINESS IN YOUR CONVERSATIONS ABOUT THE FUTURE OF THEIR TAXES BEING INCREASED?
4: So in this regard, I have been actually pleasantly surprised. I've talked to nearly 100 CEOs personally, and what they all agree on is they support the president's calls for bold, big infrastructure investments, which are necessary for their competitiveness. Uh, THEY ALL AGREE WE NEED INVESTMENTS IN BROADBAND, SO EVERY AMERICAN HAS BROADBAND, MAJOR INVESTMENTS IN ROADS AND BRIDGES AND CHILDCARE. THE QUESTION, OF COURSE, IS HOW DO YOU PAY FOR IT? AND THE REALITY IS um, they, THEY KNEW INCREASED CORPORATE TAXES WERE COMING. And I have been very pleased by how many CEOs have come out to support the president's plan. So, listen, there'll be room for compromise for sure. And, and the president will be meeting with members of, of Congress this week, hoping to find compromise. But businesses need these investments to be competitive, and that's why there's no time to waste.
1: I want to ask you about a piece of news on the uh, colonial pipeline that was hit with a cyber attack. Uh, this... Uh, uh supplies roughly 45 percent of the gas to the East Coast. Uh, a, do you think it will have an economic impact? And then, B, um, what—is this what businesses now have to worry about? Because this isn't the first business to be hit by a ransomware attack.
4: This is what businesses now have to worry about, and I will be working uh, very closely with Ali Mayorkas on this. Uh, it's a top priority for the administration. Unfortunately, these sorts of attacks are becoming more frequent they 're here to stay, and we have to work in partnership with business to secure um, secure networks to defend ourselves against these attacks as it relates to colonial. The president was briefed yesterday it 's an all hands on deck effort right now, and we are working closely with the company, state and local officials to you know, make sure that they get back up to normal operations as quickly as possible and there aren't disruptions in supply.
1: All right, Secretary Gina Raimondo, thank you so much for being with us. Happy Mother's Day. And Face the Nation will be back in one minute with the head of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. We go now to Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. Thanks so much for joining us. I wanna jump right in here to the first question, which is the April jobs report. Help us understand what it means about that specific report and then what you think can be determined, if anything, about the larger state of the economy.
5: Well, John, I think we shouldn't overreact to any one report, either the really good report that came out the month prior or last week's report as well. But I think the bottom line is, we are still somewhere between 8 and 10 million jobs below where we were before the pandemic. Roughly 8 to 10 million Americans ought to be working right now if the COVID crisis had not happened. So we still are in a deep hole, and we still need to do everything we can to put those folks back to work more quickly. i mean, just to give you one example. When the financial crisis hit in 2008, it took 10 years to rebuild the labor market and put the economy fully back together. That is far too long, and so we at the Federal Reserve are doing everything we can to accelerate that job market recovery because it's good for the economy and it's good for families all across the country.
1: Well, that specter of a slow, plodding 10-year recovery is what has everybody worried. Speaking of worry, the question of risk, individual risk perception, we do see that people have more money than they seem to be spending. Give us your understanding of personal risk choices that people are making and can that really be changed and if so how
5: i think you know your discussions with dr gottlieb and the commerce secretary were exactly right you know though it wasn't simply the lockdowns from the government that put a damper on the economy it was each of us each of your viewers each family taking actions to protect themselves. Yesterday, for the first time in over a year, I got back on an airplane because my wife and I had been vaccinated and we felt comfortable. But it's going to take time for that psychology to change. And so I do think that uh, there is some truth to the unemployment benefits maybe being a disincentive. I see that in the data. And I see that in anecdotes as we talk to people. I also think that childcare shortages are a big impediment to people coming back in with schools still being partially closed. And I think that fear, the risk of, hey, I don't want to get back onto a crowded bus if that's what it's going to take to go to my job. Now, the good news is over the next three or four months, each of those factors should get better as the uh, vaccine continues to penetrate, as the virus continues to slow down, schools reopen and people regain their confidence. Those things should get better, which should lead to strong growth in the second half of the year and strong labor market recovery, I hope. It feels like you're putting a, uh, telling
1: all of us to look to September when two of those things are happening, school restarts and those federal unemployment benefits will go away. So is that a smart way to think about this? Maybe a little bit sluggish until we get in September, people are more prodded to work because they're no longer getting unemployment benefits. And those who worry about having kids at home, well, the kids will be off at school.
5: I think those two factors and, I'm assuming, continued vaccine penetration will give all of us more confidence. So you know, for me, I'm, I'm thinking about myself. My wife and I are vaccinated. When are we going to go back into a crowded restaurant where we might be around other people who are unvaccinated? That gives me some pause, even though I know how effective the vaccines are. As the overall population uh, vaccine penetration goes up, I'm going to feel more confident. So I think all three of those factors are all going to trend in a better direction over the next few months. And, of course, we have to watch, you know, Dr. Gottlieb and others can advise us on the variance. but the trend is obviously very good, which should boost confidence. We
1: have 30 seconds before the break. Anything else in the April jobs report that stood out to you?
5: Well, women continue to be uh, disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I think the uh, women, the data went down for women, actually. There was no job growth. I don't want to overreact to one month, but the childcare issues uh, continue to be a paramount. And that's why getting schools fully reopened, getting kids vaccinated, that's oh. also going to be key to really restoring our economy and getting back to full productivity. OK, we're going to take a break
1: really fast right now. But Neil Kashkari, stay with us. We'll talk to you on the other side of the break. If you're not able to watch the full face of the nation, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through your CBS and Paramount Plus apps. And we'll be right back with more from Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, plus Congressman Adam Kinzinger and author Michael Lewis.
3: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation with Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. I want to underscore what you said when we started, which is don't overdo it on looking at one-month report. However, the projections were that there was going to be a million jobs in this one month. So that's an enormous miss. What I wonder is, is there something about this response to the pandemic coming out of it that has kind of thrown off all our abilities to measure economic activity and and to project what economic activity will be.
5: Absolutely. I mean, this is unlike any other economic shock in any of our lifetimes. This is very different than the financial crisis. And as we talked about earlier before the break, a lot of this is being driven by people's own feelings of personal safety, their own health for themselves and their families. It's very hard to model that out and to know. You know, Dr. Gottlieb talked about we have spent a year conditioning all of us to wear masks, to be safe, to be cautious. Now we have to start to change what we've been telling people and get people to change how they feel inside. And so we can put out economic forecasts of how people are going to respond to different incentives, but it's really uncertain. And so it is still the virus and people's the reality of the virus and people's feeling safe about the virus that's ultimately going to drive this economic recovery. I think the the hope is that Congress has been so aggressive in the past year, and the Federal Reserve has been so aggressive in the past year, that we have positioned the economy for a fast recovery, not a 10-year recovery. But there's still a great deal of uncertainty about the virus, but also about how we are all feeling and the confidence that ultimately we need to have to fully restore the economy.
1: What does a recovery look like, actually? So if it's not 10 years, how many years are we talking about? And is it just replacing the 8 million jobs or is it replacing the 10 million that we would have if we hadn't been hit by this pandemic?
5: Oh, it's the, for me, it's the 10 million because our population continues to grow. And so those are new people potentially entering the workforce, hopefully entering the workforce. So you were exactly right. If the pandemic had not hit... We estimate there would be 10 million more Americans working today, both people who already had jobs and new entrants into the labor force. We need to put all of them back to work. And so at the Federal Reserve, we're focused on achieving what we call maximum employment, as many Americans as possible gainfully employed and contributing to our economy. And so for me, I'm looking at when do we recover those 10 million jobs. I think it's going to take a few years before we can fully get back to that place. But you know, two years is much better than 10 years. If we can do it faster, so much the better. The Fed thinks about
1: maximum employment and prices. Tell us in this strange world we're in right now, what we should think about inflation and prices, when we should be nervous, when we should not uh, remember stories from the 1970s and overreact.
5: Yeah, well, we aim for an average of 2% inflation over time. For 10 years, we've been undershooting that 2% inflation target. Now, we know just based on math that in the next few months, the inflation numbers are going to look high. Because the way inflation is calculated, it's a rolling 12 months. And so last year, last March, the inflation numbers plummeted, oil prices plummeted. Those data are going to now fall out of the calculation. So just based on math, we know the inflation numbers are going to look high in the next few months. We also know there are short-term supply chain issues that you talked about earlier with semiconductors. So what we're very focused on in the Federal Reserve is looking deep at the data to determine, are these short-term mathematical supply chain issues that should resolve themselves, or are they longer-term inflation issues? And so for me, I'm very skeptical that we're going to have sustained high inflation if we still have 5 or 10 million Americans out of work. We think the labor market is really what's going to drive inflation over the long term. And so we look at a lot of different data. Right now, I'm not concerned about a repeat of the 1970s. I do think inflation is going to pop in the near term, but that is likely going to be transitory. But if we're wrong, and if high inflation comes because of a lot of government spending over the next few years, the Federal Reserve has the tools to make sure that we do not have a repeat of the 1970s. That is certainly not my base case scenario. But if that were to happen, we know how to deal with that.
1: All right, Neil Kashkari, thank you so much for putting it all into perspective for us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Former President Trump continues to be the central figure in the ongoing drama over the future of the Republican Party. This week, House Republicans are expected to remove Congresswoman Liz Cheney from her leadership position. She's been consistently critical of Mr. Trump for perpetuating the lie that the election had been stolen from him and inciting the riots on January 6th. Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger is one of the few Republican members supporting Cheney and joins us from his district in Illinois. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you? Before we get to uh, the Republican Party, I want to ask you about Colonial Pipeline. You are on the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, what do you know about this attack and uh, how important is
3: it?
2: It's really important in terms of you know understanding the role that uh, cyber is playing in the future. Things like critical infrastructure, energy. Uh, I don't know much more than what you all know. Maybe I will this uh, week when I get back to D.C. But uh, this needs to redouble our efforts as a country to, to get past our internal divisions as the end-all be-all of everything and, and focus on things like critical infrastructure. Uh, in the future, because this is only going to continue to happen more often if we're not careful.
1: Speaking of internal divisions, the Republican Party in the House, uh, it looks like Liz Cheney, the number three in House leadership on the Republican side, is no longer going to hold that position. What is this debate about?
2: Yeah, look, it's incredible. So Liz Cheney uh, is saying exactly what Kevin McCarthy said uh, the day of the insurrection. She's just consistently been saying it. And a few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy changed to attacking other people. And so I think what the reality is, is as a party, we have to have an internal look and a full accounting as to what led to January 6th. I mean, right now it's basically the, the Titanic. We're like, you know, in, this, in the middle of this slow sink, we have a band playing on the deck telling everybody it's fine. And meanwhile, as I've said, you know, Donald Trump's running around trying to find women's clothing and get on the first lifeboat. And I think there's a few of us that are just saying, guys, this is not good, not just for the future of the party, but this is not good for the future of this country. We're four months after January 6th, an insurrection, something that was unthinkable in this country. And the message from the people that want to get rid of Liz Cheney is to say, it's just time to focus on the future and move on. Like this was 10 years ago, and we've been obsessed about it since. It's been four months, and we have so many people, including our leadership in the party, that has not admitted that this is what it is, which was an insurrection led by the president of the United States, well-deserving of a full accounting from Republicans.
1: But if you are a leader of a party and 70% of the members of your party think the last election was stolen, uh, though they're wrong about that, you're a leader of that party. You can't change the party you're the leader of. So uh, why should a person be a leader of a party that is fundamentally at odds with what Liz Cheney believes?
2: Because truth matters right now, and we have to look and understand why, you know, yes, 70% of the base believes that the election was stolen because they've been told it was. They've been told by the president of the United States. They've been told in many cases by Republican leaders, or at least Republican leaders in the least have not countered it on something so vastly crazy as the election is stolen. You know, and and this is why you have this real battle right now in the party, this idea of let's just put our differences aside and be unified. You cannot unify truth with lies. The lie is that the election was stolen. The truth is Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, and I'm sorry that 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. They weren't disenfranchised, they were simply outnumbered. And as a party, let's focus on now, how do we go out and win more people? And that's why actually I started the Country First movement at country1st.com is just to say, tell people the truth and quit peddling in conspiracies because that's what we've seen in this party. And they're <laughs> going to get rid of Liz Cheney because they'd much rather pretend that the conspiracy is either real or not confront it than to actually confront it and maybe have to take the temporary licks to save this party in the long term this country.
1: Speaking of outnumbered, though you and Liz Cheney and maybe Mitt Romney in the Senate are outnumbered by the current Republican Party, um, it is Donald Trump's Republican Party. The numbers are on their side. So why stay in it?
2: Well, look, it's it's. I was a Republican far longer than Donald Trump, and I'm only 43 years old. He became a Republican just a few years ago, and and tried to change the whole definition of conservatism. So I think it's worth a fight. But, you know, the reality is, over time, we're going to see who, who wins this battle. And and then there'll be a lot of decisions to make everywhere as we see parties realign and change. For me, I'm a conservative. I'm going to fight for the soul of this party. And uh, But every member, not just... Not just, you know, leadership, every congressman, every state representative, every member of the party that pulls a ballot in the primary has to decide, are are we going to exist on lies or are we going to exist on truth? And to everybody that grew up in Sunday school like me, that thinks somehow accepting a lie is okay because maybe we can win the bigger battles, I got to tell you that, you know, the Christ I follow, the Jesus I know, uh, never says anything about it's okay to lie to the people as long as the end state is the same. Truth matters, and that's what this party has to come to grips with, no matter the cost.
1: Do you think Donald Trump's power in the Republican Party comes from his ability to grow the electorate, reach out to new voters, or because members are scared of crossing him?
2: I think it's the latter. I think at the beginning, look, he was able to reach to a sector that we should naturally win, people that are struggling to make ends meet. We also lost a lot of people in that process. But Donald Trump was done after January 6th when Kevin McCarthy said, you know, this is Donald Trump's fault. Make no mistake. He was done. He was sulking away to Mar-a-Lago, didn't even go to the inauguration. And two weeks later, when you look at the financial side of it and you look at the fact there's an election in two years and we want the majority, Kevin McCarthy went, and so did Steve Scalise, and they put the paddles on Donald Trump and resurrected him in the party. And everybody after that became scared to death of who Donald Trump was again. And that's what empowered him. And everybody went quiet. That's why the country first movement I started, country1st.com, is trying to push back because we have to fight for the soul of this party and
1: country. All right, Adam Kinzinger, the fight continues. Thank you so much for being with us. We turn now to the coronavirus crisis in India, where nearly half of all cases and a quarter of the deaths around the world were reported last week, according to the World Health Organization. CBS News foreign correspondent Chris Livesay reports from New Delhi.
6: Good morning. India's stratospheric death toll shows no signs of slowing. New Delhi announced this morning it's extending its lockdown at police checkpoints like these for another week as cases creep throughout the country and even across India's borders. The river Ganges is revered as a goddess, cleansing sins and ushering the dead to paradise. But in recent months, it was a gateway to India's pandemic inferno millions of hindus gathered on its banks at the festival of Mela, thought to be the biggest super spreader event ever due to religious gatherings political rallies and letting down its guard. India is now surpassing 400,000 daily infections for four days in a row, says Princeton epidemiologist Ramanan Laxminarayan.
1: There's still a huge underestimate of where they are. Uh, and every death is is just a tragedy because these were all avertible deaths for the most part.
6: The virus now shows terrifying signs of catching fire in rural areas where 75% of Indians live with abysmal health healthcare. Hidden cameras show a hospital in the holy city of Varanasi. Relatives, not doctors, look after the sick, mixed among patients with other ailments. If my wife had gotten the right medicines and treatment, she might have survived. But she didn't get it here, says Pankaj Maria. They really need to restrict the movement and gatherings in those places. But so far, the government has ruled out a nationwide lockdown, despite deaths on pace to reach 1 million by August. India is one of the world's biggest producers of vaccines, but only about 3% of Indians have been vaccinated, prompting the government to ban exports and causing a crisis in Africa. Kenya says it will run out of vaccines within days as the continent braces for a second wave, hopefully not as ferocious as India's. And cases are also beginning to spike in neighboring countries like Pakistan and Nepal. Now, here in New Delhi, a leading epidemiologist tells me that the mere local lockdown
1: is too little, too late. Chris Livesay reporting from India. We'll be back in a moment. And we go now to Michael Lewis, author of a new book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. He joins us from Berkeley, California. Good morning, Michael. Morning, John. Um, I want to start with a quote from Bill Parcells, the NFL football coach. You are what your record says you are. You quote that in the book to explain your view about the American record on the coronavirus. Why is that quote important?
8: It's important. I mean, the starting point for this book is, look, we were sitting at a little more than 4% of the world's population with 20% of the world's deaths. And before the season, before the pandemic, we were, we were, we were rated by experts as most prepared for this sort of risk. And, and, but the games get played, and as Bill Parcells said after a losing season, you know, you can make all kinds of excuses. You can point fingers at whoever you want to point fingers at. All of it is avoiding looking in the mirror because you are who, who you are. What your record says you are, and our record, our record's appalling. I mean, what we did is appalling, and, and, and reflected kind of a deep negligence
1: of our own population. And you went into this project looking for the roots of that negligence, and you chose a number of different characters to illuminate something. What were you trying to illuminate?
8: A system. Like the system that, that I was really worried uh, because of work I'd done previously, The Fifth Risk, the book I'd written about the federal government, that the takeaway was uh, from this whole event was like with a uh, losing sports team, was gonna be, uh, let's point the finger at the quarterback or, or the coach or whoever. and and people would think oh if we just change the if we just change a person or two here it's going it, to it's going to it's all going to be better and when in fact the, the characters in the story that i tell you can tell by the shape of their frustration i mean they're these extraordinary people who've gone to unbelievable lengths with a kind of obsession to prevent just this thing from happening that that you can tell by how they fail what's, this is a bigger problem that you've got, we've got these systematic things that we need to address.
1: And one of the big things you identify as a systematic problem is that the people who know don't, aren't able to get their information into the heads of the people who can act, either because they're not heard or because they're not listened to.
8: That's part of it, that's part of it. I mean, we had, we had, you know, very persuasive evidence. Carter Mesher, one of the main characters in the book, could have sat you down on January the 20th and persuaded you really pretty quickly that we were going that what what happened was going to happen, and that that's that's a a month before the Centers for Disease Control acknowledges that you know this is an, a risk a risk to American lives, and in that month, uh, you know it, the, the the delay of the response cost thousands and thousands of lives. So so it, 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 part of it is part of it is that it's like it's like yes the wrong people. Are are being listened to, but part of it is like the system was designed for them not never to get there. That that we have built, um, especially at the federal level, a government that operates in a defensive crouch, and that punishes risk taking and punishes error mercilessly, but doesn't punish inaction in the same way. And 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 so so anybody who's who's got you know wisdom, news, insight that that implies action and implies taking some risk is naturally going to be shunned because the the government really doesn't want to do that.
1: And I want to stay linger on on this important point that you're making. What your characters all have is a kind of risk-taking muscle. They've been in this fight for their whole careers. They can see things. They have, title of the book, a premonition because it's informed. And yet the political instinct in politics, which is to say in, in, in an administration, is at odds with that. Is, that. is that a fair way to think about this?
8: It's totally a fair way to think about it. And then you think about, well, what does that mean, right? I mean, it, what does it mean, in, especially when you're facing this sort of risk? And, and a disease risk requires you to get out in front of it in, in ways that are just kind of unnatural to the, to the structures we have. Because by the time you have like proof, like by the time you have data that this is a deadly thing that's going to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans, it's it, it's too late. The disease is it, has, is moving among you. You have that you have almost to be clairvoyant, and you have to do things and explain to people why you're doing them, which don't seem obvious. That, that you know that, that 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 yeah, there's this thing in Wuhan, but actually it's effectively here, uh, and and so so that. It's true, all my characters, the three people at the center of this book, I mean, they're amazing people, but they, they all have, they'd prefer to commit a sin of commission than a sin of omission. They'd prefer, to, they'd prefer they, they, they they default to action.
1: And I wanna go back to a point you were making earlier, which is if it's a systemic problem, then blaming Donald Trump, which is what you are hinting at earlier, actually is an impediment to improving systems so that they'll be able to handle another one of these.
8: Yeah, so I don't want to let Donald Trump off the hook. I mean that's not really the point. Um, but the point is that no matter how you feel about him, even if you despise him, if you f- if your mind comes to rest at oh it was all his fault, we are never going to address the underlying problem that actually that actually drove our response. And we we are never going to f- we we're going to be we're going to be similarly at risk the next time this happens. And I tell you every single one of the characters in the book Make a very persuasive case that this was a dry run; that this could have been much worse; uh, that that it could have killed children; it could have been more lethal; uh, and that and that we're we're just fools if we think this isn't going to happen again. So, so to just point a finger, it's like, I, I like a losing football team the, the point a finger at a single person involved and say that's why we lost. That's catastrophic. It's, it's, it's right, not. Mike. It's not how you. It's, it's not how you fix the team. All right right? That's right.
1: Michael, we're we out of time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being with us. And this programming note, former First Lady Michelle Obama sits down with Gail King for an exclusive interview tomorrow on CBS This Morning. For some number of eons, on a show like this, Happy Mother's Day was something the moderator might wish others to have. No more. We are full of mothers at Face the Nation, Our moderator, Margaret Brennan, just had her second child. Our executive producer, Mary Hager. Senior producer, Avery Miller. Booking producer, Carol Joint. Digital producer, Emily Tillett. Operations manager, Laura Foran. Associate directors, Sharman Boyle and Janice Huey. Graphics operator, Jeanette Renier. Editor, Akira Marshall and teleprompter operators Pat Coney and Cynthia Miller. Mothers all. And my mother, Nancy Dickerson, worked on the first broadcast of Face the Nation. And today, I'll see my mother-in-law, Betty McKeon, for the first time in more than 18 months. 50 years ago, she adopted my favorite mother of all, Ann Dickerson, her daughter. Bless all of you mothers, from all of us grateful sons and daughters. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and author Michael Lewis. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
7: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D Adaris.
7: What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did